I look out and I see a lot of dads, and I see a lot of people who have dads, and uh, I know a day like this uh, is a day of great reflection, reflecting on what our fathers have meant to us, for many of us, uh, just profound influence for good, for others, heartache because of loss or because of bad examples. But in all this, God created earthly fatherhood in some way to point us to Him as Father. And so we can rejoice that we have a steady anchor, our Father in Heaven. So for those of you who are men out there, who are fathers out there, humbly, imperfectly trying in God's grace to steward the leadership He's given you well, thank you for the work you're doing. We're really grateful for you. Uh, and for me, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's weird thinking fathers when you're one, but um, we are uh, in our series in Lamentations. So, if you'd take your Bibles and open up to Lamentations, if you're uh, using the Bible in the pew rack that looks like this, it's on page 685. 685. We're going to be reading uh, from chapter 1, the first half of this poem. So each chapter is its own poem. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first half of the first poem. So verses 1 to 11. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Lamentations 1, 1 to 11. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper, because Yahweh has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her afflictions and wanderings all the precious things that were hers from of old. When people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her, her foes gloated over her, they mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despised her. 
for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Yahweh, behold my affliction, for the enemy's triumph. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Yahweh, and see, for I am despised. You can be seated as we pray. God, in your providence, this is the passage you have before us this morning. This is the word that you want us thinking on and meditating on. And so together we are saying, by your Spirit, Lord, take this word and shape us. We need your voice this morning. All of us need it equally, but some of us feel that more than others. But together we unite our prayer and say, Spirit, speak by your word that you inspired long ago. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever sat with a woman who has just lost her husband? It's heartbreaking. The tears run down her cheeks. Her heart, which is so wounded, is trying to process a thousand questions. Her nights are filled with tears instead of sleep. A harsh and sober reality sets in for her. She's alone. She cries, and there's no arm coming around her to comfort her. She has a heavy heart. There's no one she can share that with. She must bear it alone. Alone. And it's not just the loss of her husband that leaves her alone. It's the fortunate widow who has kids that are able to stay close to her and care for her. It's the fortunate widow who doesn't see all her friendships altered or some even toppled. Most find themselves profoundly alone. And the comforters who mourn with you in those first few weeks soon fade. So she soon weeps alone. Some of you have seen this happen to your mother or your sister 
or maybe yourself. If so, then you can understand the depth of imagery being used in these first two verses of Lamentation. Listen again with that in mind as I read the first two verses. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she's become. She was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers or all who loved her, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They've become her enemies. Widowhood is a moving image. But it wasn't the only image used in these two verses. Did you notice at the end of verse 1 that second image of a princess becoming a slave? Maybe it's helpful for us to think of kind of the princess in our lives. Probably a little daughter or a granddaughter. Imagine her being kidnapped and forced to serve a captor. A thought like that's almost too much to bear. Now the point of the imagery of the princess becoming a slave is in part the agony of it. But it's also the reversal. From being the princess or the queen among the provinces to being a slave. You may have noticed when I read all 11 verses, reversal is kind of a theme that runs throughout. So you saw it in verse 1 with a lonely city that was once full of people, a widow who is amongst great, a princess who is now a slave. You see in verse 2, she used to have many friends, but now those friends are her enemies. You see it in verse 6, she had majesty, but it's now departed. You see it in verse 7 as she remembers all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. But now she's remembering how they were gone and her foes gloat over her and mock at her downfall. I could go on. Really, it's a whole passage that reeks of reversal. There's a reason for that. We might miss it, but they wouldn't have in that day. Because out of all the cities, it's astounding that Jerusalem has fallen. Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, God says, You are a people holy to Yahweh your God. Yahweh God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession." Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You hear God's heart for Israel? Jerusalem was the chosen people's capital city. And now this chosen, treasured people 
is captured and sent into exile. Listen to what Psalm 46, verses 4 to 6 say. There is a river that makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. You hear what it's saying about Jerusalem? It's the holy habitation of the Most High. And yet, Jerusalem has fallen. The city of God is no more. Raised, leveled. It's shocking. But Jerusalem isn't just the capital of God's people. It's not just the city of God. It's also the city that housed the temple. When Solomon had finished the temple and brought the Ark of the Covenant and he, he prays in 1 Kings chapter 8, may your eyes be open night and day toward this house or this temple, the place which you have said, my name shall dwell there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. It's just a little taste of it, but the temple was the place where the holy God could come down and show that he dwelled with a sinful people. It was the sign that God was with his people. And now that very temple has been destroyed. Did you see that in verse 10? It says, The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things. I think when it's saying precious things, it's saying the things most dear to her, the temple. It says, For she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, the holy of holies, those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. The things most precious to Israel have been snatched out of the midst of the sanctuary. I'm showing you these different levels because I want you to see that when Jerusalem falls, it's as though the very fibers of their religion become undone. The whole thing is being deconstructed. Look at verse 4. The roads to Zion mourn for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. These Zions closed for business. The religious festivals are canceled. The priests are groaning instead of ministering. I think it's hard. I, I'm trying to think even in my own heart and then conveying it to, to capture how devastating it is. It's, it's civic. It's religious. It's personal to have Jerusalem fall. It might be like if a Muslim had Mecca, Saudi Arabia, and his own personal house destroyed in a single swoop. Only it's far worse than that because this was the true God's city. This was the place where he'd vowed to place his name. The very pillars you thought you could rely on have been shaken. 
I know there's some in here that can relate to that. Having the very pillars that you think you can rely on shaken. Look at the very first word in this poem. Remember, chapter one's a poem. Look at the first word. How? Look at chapter two, the second poem. The first word. How? Look at chapter four, the fourth poem. First word. How? 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 It's a word of longing. It can be a word of mourning. It's a word of groaning. But it's also a word of perplexion. I don't get it. How? Nothing makes sense anymore. The reversal is astounding. God's treasured people, the city of God, with a God-ordained temple, reminding them of God's presence with them, all this is gone. Completely. Utterly. How? 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 I think we need to be warned by this sudden and terrible reversal. Proximity to God, proximity to God's graces does not give us license to rebel continually against Him and think we'll escape judgment. I'm often in church, you may say. I entered the waters of baptism you may say. I tithe to the church and I volunteered, you may say. But Jesus himself teaches that some will be surprised on, judgments, on judgment day when they hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. For those who persist in open rebellion against God, whether in the Old Testament or in the New, the Bible gives no hope that you will be safe from God's judgment. If Jerusalem can be leveled, if the temple could be destroyed, if God's chosen, treasured people could be sent into ex exile, none of us is immune. Now, I want to make sure we get that. God is not like some sinister teacher trying to catch his pupils with a trick question so that he can pull the rug out from under them. Gotcha! See you in hell! That's not God. God's heart aches over judgment. And that's why He warns. I want, to listen, I want you to listen to how far He went to warn Israel. And this is a really important passage. So if you're one who keeps notes, some of you have those little Lamentations journals. You can write this here. Maybe you write in your Bibles. 
but you want to know 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 to 23. 2 Kings 17, 7 to 23. You can turn back there. It's on page 323 of your pew Bibles. Second Kings seventeen seven to twenty three. I don't don't often read a longer passage besides the one we're in, but I think this is so important for understanding God's heart and what led to lamentations. Now, in this particular passage, is talking about uh, there are two parts of Israel. There's the northern kingdom which rebelled a little harder and a little earlier, and then there's the southern kingdom where Jerusalem was. This one's talking about the fall of the northern kingdom when they were sent into exile. But it also makes some application to the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. So you'll hear Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, mentioned. But this was written right after the fall, or describing the fall of the northern kingdoms. 2 Kings 17.7 This occurred... Because the people of Israel had sinned against Yahweh their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom Yahweh had driven out before the people of Israel, and the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against Yahweh their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations nations did, whom Yahweh carried away from before them. And they did wicked things, provoking Yahweh to anger. And they served idols, of which Yahweh had said to them, You shall not do this. And this is important. Yet Yahweh warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn away from your ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I command your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in Yahweh their God. They despised His statutes and His covenant that He made with their fathers and the warnings that He gave to them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom Yahweh had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of Yahweh their God and made them for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of Yahweh, provoking Him to anger. Therefore, Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And Yahweh rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king 
And Jeroboam drove Israel from following Yahweh and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until Yahweh removed Israel from out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. I know that's a long passage, but I want you to see God's heart. Israel starts out rebelling, and what does God do? He sends somebody and says, don't, stop, you're going the wrong way. But they keep on, and he sends prophet after prophet after prophet. And yet they stubbornly continue to reject the message and say, I don't want, I'm throwing off your statutes and commands. I'm going to do things the way I insist are better. If you're going to understand Lamentations, you have to understand to what length God went to try and avert this disaster. God does not want His people to have to grieve saying, How? 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 sends messengers over and over to warn. And just like he did for Israel, he does for us. Now he's bounded it up, his word in the Bible. He's given us books like Lamentations. But if we hold to the relics of our religion, thinking we're immune to judgment because we wear a cross or attend a Baptist church, so much so that we ignore warning after warning in Scripture, we should not think that we are immune. So that first dominant image in the book of Lamentations is of a widow alone. There's a dominant image of the reversal that the widow captures. Israel, once in such a privileged position, now sits very, very low. There's another dominant image in these 11 verses, another woman. This time Israel's not compared to a widow. She's compared to a floozy, a tramp, a loose woman. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Here, we learn that the terrible reversal, the widowhood of the princess of Israel, is the result of her grievous sins. It's an echo of verse 5. You might have noticed as we were reading in verse 5, it says, Yahweh has afflicted her for, for the multitude of her transgressions. 
But in verses 8 and 9, the way Israel's transgression is described is using the imagery of a loose woman, a woman who has shown her nakedness to many. Now, I want to make clear that this is an image. The image is of a loose woman who chooses to expose herself to many people, and in the course of her fornication, she stains her skirts. And it says that she doesn't even think about the fact that the stains will be there for others to see. It's like the husband who shows up to home with another woman's lipstick all over his collar. What was he thinking? The point is he wasn't. He pursued his sin with no thought of the future, and now his sin is on display. This loose woman's promiscuity is so terrible now that it's been exposed all her former lovers despise her. And there's something even sad in this image. The woman who sold what was most precious to any and all now groans in her self-inflicted misery and she has nothing left. She's given herself over to immorality and yet she comes up empty. That's the image. Now I want to explain what the imagery is doing. Because this is really critical. It's saying that what happened to Israel is like the loose woman having her garments stained. Look at this parallel. In the beginning of verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned grievously, therefore she has become filthy. And it's parallel to the idea of the loose woman who gave no thought to the future, so her skirts became unclean. I want you to see that the effect is organically connected to the cause. You sleep around, your skirts get stained. You see, God's judgment on Israel is not something foreign that he's hoisted upon her. The judgment is simply the natural byproduct of her own decisions. She chose to sleep around. Now she has stains on her clothes. She chose to rebel against God. Now she's lost his protection and is a complete mess. Now this concept is key to understanding God's judgment. The way God acts when his anger burns isn't to force some external thing upon us. Rather, it's just to remove the regulator from our engine as we barrel towards destruction. On the one side, we have the goodness of God's rule. He's gracious. He's loving. He's patient. He's tender. He's kind. His love is steadfast. His mercy's new every morning. His is the way of peace 
and wholeness. On the other side, you have the way of self-rule, which is actually just the way of giving sway to sin. And sin's aim is to destroy us, to conquer us. It aims to swallow us up. Be like a spiritual cancer that destroys us from within. It wants strife and despair and hatred and brokenness and death and jealousy and murder. And when we stubbornly choose self-rule, no matter how much we think we're a good person, no matter how self-righteous we are, we are ultimately choosing to rebel against God. God's patient. He uses all sorts of things to call to us, urging us to stop, urging us to turn back to Him. But the Bible teaches that if we choose that way at some point, He lets go. He pours out His wrath against us by letting us go. He says, fine, Go stain your skirts. Go show your nakedness to everyone. You dig your own grave. Now when the Bible talks about God's wrath, it doesn't talk about it in a passive way. It's not that just, it doesn't just say God kind of let us, took his hands off of it. Even in verse 5, it was, we see Yahweh has afflicted us. He's active in it. But but this is what we need to understand. When God's anger actively burns against us in judgment, what he's doing is giving us over to the very vileness and darkness we were already pursuing. It is not unjust. He is giving us what we have chosen for ourselves. He's allowing us to have what we stubbornly insisted on having despite his warning. The loose woman is shamed by her looseness. The rebellious people are sunk by their rebellion. In this case, the imagery of the weeping widow who is completely alone is like that because she has sinned grievously. I just want to think again about that word alone. That's where sin leads us ultimately, weeping alone. We saw it in verse 2. She has none to comfort her. It's there in verse 7. None to help her. And it's there again in verse 9. She has no comforter. You know why? Because sin alienates us from people. And more profoundly, sin alienates us from God, the only one who's truly always there for us. There are few things sadder than weeping alone. I'm told that in the old Soviet orphanages, the babies didn't cry. And that's because they'd wail and wail and wail and no one would respond. 
And so they'd eventually just stop crying. And psychologically, it's one of the worst things that can happen to a baby. It's Father's Day today. Dads, we know when our babies are little and they start crying, we go to them. And we show we care. I don't know what tricks you used. I had this huge rock I would use. I patted my baby so hard that my parents were like, I think you're hitting the baby too hard. Like, it's stopping her from crying. It wasn't, it's okay. They're alive and healthy. I'm getting reported, aren't I? Our tricks don't always work. A lot of times it's just they need mom to stop crying. But you know what? Dads, when you go to your baby who's crying and show that you care, you're actually doing something really powerful for that child. Even if your child isn't, doesn't stop crying, what you're doing is something so good for their soul, so good for their brain, so good for their health. You think about it as your child grows up, maybe a teenager crying. You go to him or you go to her and are there to comfort her or even your adult children in a time of grief, having a parent who's there for them, a father who's there for them. This is profound good. Crying is terrible, but crying with none to comfort is far more terrible. And yet that's how Israel's described when she's under judgment. And in an even more profound way, that's how hell will be. Lamentations gives us a picture of God's judgment on earthly Israel. But as the New Testament tees out this idea, hell is eternal and irreversible. In hell, it's it's the whole agony of our sin unchecked by God's grace. We're just writhing in all that agony with none to comfort. All alone. Alienated from the rest of humanity. Perpetual widowhood. I know there are some here who, for whatever reason, have yet to embrace Jesus. Now, I trust that your reasons are good. But God is sending you a warning today. If you continue on a path of stubborn, self-righteous, self-rule, you're on a path to perpetual widowhood, to a weeping alone for all eternity. I pray, I hope, that this little taste of hell that we're getting here in Lamentations drives you to take shelter in Jesus so that you can flee the wrath to come. It's not God's heart. He doesn't want you to weep alone. So he's calling you today to 
turn from your ways and come to him. So we've seen two women, the widow and the floozy. Israel under God's wrath and the explanation for the cause and pattern of God's wrath. There's one other element in these 11 verses that we need to take note of. Remember those quizzes that would list four things and you had to figure out which one didn't belong? Horse, duck, beaver, dug, dog, not dug. <laughs> the duck doesn't belong because it only has two legs. Leafs fan, Oilers fan, Senators fan, Blackhawks fan. Which one doesn't belong? It's the Senators fan because it's the only one without a brain. <laughs> Just kidding. Listen, I love everybody. Father's Day, we can have some fun, right? There's something in these 11 verses, as you read through them, that just is completely different from the rest. And in Hebrew poetry, when there's something that breaks the pattern, it's telling us to take note. Maybe you notice what it was that was different. I'll give you a hint. It's the end of verse 9, and it's at the end of verse 11. Do you see it? Throughout these 11 verses, the narrator is describing Jerusalem in her anguish. But out of the blue, Jerusalem suddenly has a voice. Out of the blue, Jerusalem is talking to Yahweh. See at the end of the verse 9, O Yahweh, Lord in all caps means Yahweh, that's why I say that. O Yahweh, behold my affliction for the enemy has triumphed. And there at the end of verse 11, look, O Yahweh, and see, for I am despised. Now this is really important. There are two different kinds of lament. One is the lament of an unbeliever, and the other is a lament of a believer. Both lamenters bemoan their agony. Both speak honestly with God about their misery. Both know that God is ultimately responsible for their misery. But one views God as ogrely and miserly, a harsh God bent on destroying us. The other knows that even as God has justly punished us, his heart is not ultimately against us. It's ultimately for us. And so that lamenter cries out to him, the very one who is afflicting us. The believer's lament is ultimately a cry out to God, not a cry against God. So the believer can make the appeal, behold, look, why can the believer even as Jerusalem is crumbling around them even as the temple is being raided why can they cry out to God it's because they understand something about who God is 
Yes, God is just. Yes, God punishes rebellion. He must. Yes, God is sovereign, so even the fall of Jerusalem is directed by His hand. But, just because God removes the regulator and allows us to experience the horror we chose for ourselves doesn't mean He ceases to be good. He is still gracious. He's still the patient God He's always been. And so we can cry out to Him. Yes, He allowed Jerusalem to fall. Yes, He allowed the temple to be destroyed. But God will not forget His promises. His judgment in 586 B.C., which this is describing, was not the last word. Now, yes, for those who sink their teeth, set them against God in, in perpetual rebellion, they will meet an irreversible judgment. But for those who cry out to God, while He may be found, He's willing and eager to save us from our misery. The believer laments, but even still the believer can still repent. I don't know where your sin has led you. Maybe sin has destroyed a marriage. Maybe your sin has alienated people you love. Maybe your sin's left you feeling really alone. Maybe your sin's fried your brain. Maybe your sin has left you with a broken heart or skewed soul. Lament. Bring your agony to God. Tell Him how miserable you are. But even as you bemoan your misery, even as you cry out to Him, know this, you can call out to Him. You can ask Him to behold your misery. You can ask Him to see that you are despised. Now this is, this is profound. We know Israel's in this place because of her rebellion. And it's not just little rebellion. It's huge. We know God Himself is the one who brought this on her in judgment. Yet the Holy Spirit inspired this lament to have the end of verse 9 and the end of verse 11 in it. When we are tasting the wild oats we ourselves have sown, we can still ask God to see our misery even if it's our fault, we can ask God for help. Even if the pain we're under is God's judgment against our sin, we can run to Him. Wherever your sin has led you, it hasn't led you so far that you cannot cry out to God. Whatever misery your sin has heaped upon you, you can ask God to see it. It's true for all of us. 
But on Father's Day, I want us to see especially how it's true for us as men. Men, God has put much upon our shoulders by virtue of having two different chromosomes. We carry a certain weight, a certain authority in this world. And so the damage we inflict when we sin can be dreadful. We have such capacity to hurt, to tear down, to alienate, to deflate. Our self-centeredness is uniquely damaging, and we see it in very small ways in our lives, or we see it in big ways. Even the best of us have seen the fruit of our own sin. Perhaps its effect on our wives, or seeing it in our children, or the tenor of our home, or perhaps seeing it in our own isolation, our own loneliness. And that's the best of us. And some in this room might feel like, I'm the worst of us. Whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, we're glad you're here this morning. Because we have a God we can cry out to. Lamentations has a message for you. Even as we bemoan the mess our sin has made, we can cry out to God. Now, as a man, I know it's hard for us to humble ourselves like that, to let go of being our own gods. But through lamentations, God is showing us that we can, that we should, that it's good. The images may have been female, the widow wailing alone, the loose woman reaping what she sowed. But the message is for all of us. Sin is devastating. It's horrible. But even as we face its consequences, let us not forget our God. Let's run to Jesus. His arms are open. Let's pray. God, give us eyes to see this morning. See where sin leads and see what you're like. In Christ's name, amen.